Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. And we're doing another album deep dive this week. I'm so excited, Trey. Me too. This is not only one of the best albums in the 80s, but just one of the best albums in freaking history. Okay. So we're talking about the 1987 In Excess album, Chick. What a just such a wonderful one of every song on this album is wonderful, fantastic, not a dud on it. So this was the band's sixth studio album. It was released October sixteenth, nineteen eighty seven. They were just coming off of the success in America of their previous album, Listen Like Thieves, and their manager C. M. Murphy decided. Since the songs that were such a big hit off of Listen Like Thieves were co-written by lead singer Michael Hutchins and keyboardist Andrew Ferris, C.M. Murphy decided that all of the songs on this new album needed to be written by Michael and Andrew. And the goal was to create an entire album of singles so that every track would stand on its own as a very strong single. And that's definitely what they accomplished. So this was recorded at Rhinoceros Studios in Sydney with producer Chris Thomas. Now, Chris Thomas had produced Listen Like Thieves. And the band also, wanting to up their game a little bit, they brought in sound engineer David Nicholas, with whom they had worked on Shabu Shaba. So this is like their all-star A-team as far as the production is concerned. Do you know anything, Trey, about the release of this album and the issues with the record label? Yes, Atlantic hated it and offered uh, Chris Murphy a million dollars to get back to Australia and have the band re-record it. Yeah, it's exactly right. The record label hated it so much that they wanted to scrap the whole thing. Their main objection was, because it is kind of a rock-funk fusion, which you know we've talked about this style before, but their main objection was that it sounded too black. Now, in the United States at the time, radio was still very segregated. Yeah. You know, you had your white rock and roll and top 40 stations, and then you had your R&B soul stations. The record label didn't feel that this would, would fly for white radio. I don't understand where they got that this album was. Maybe Need You Tonight sounds a little, I don't know, urban, but the rest of it, I'm like, what in the hell? Where did they come? It, it puzzles me. Well, you know, the joke ended up being on them, didn't it? Right. Because Chris Murphy never told the band, by the way, until much later, many years later. I wonder how they but, reacted that. But... Well, by then, it was already certified six times platinum. It made them billionaires had gone to number three on the charts here in the U.S., mm -hmm. was their biggest hit ever. 
So uh, I imagine they were laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, you know, this is one of those albums. It seems like everybody had it, no matter what type of music they were into. They had this. I, I think I mentioned this on our previous episode, Trey. I stole this one from my mother. My mother had it on CD and I stole it from her. I remember the day it came out riding my skateboard to a locally owned record and magazine store to me called Home Folks and buying the cassette after school got out that day and just being absolutely blown out of the water by it. Can we talk a little bit about the cover artwork? Yes, we can. You are did you meet this guy or are you actually friends with him or what's the story behind that there? Well, yeah, actually, since you mentioned it, yeah. So the cover artwork was done by Nick Egan. Uh, he's a, a graphic designer, and he would later go on to direct a few videos for not just In Excess, but Duran Duran and Alanis Morissette. So he's pretty well known in uh, record circles. And so he did the the cover artwork. You know, it's a, a collage, if you will, of pictures of the band members and super super iconic it's one of those that i've seen parodied and homage done so many times that um uh yeah i mean it, it, it's an iconic cover it really is and, the cover yeah mm-hmm. cover had me at doc martin's and skateboard mm. that that right. really i was like yes well and and yeah most of the boys in the band were really into skateboard culture so and I was too at the time, oddly. So that may sing it for someone like me. Yeah. So my story about this album, before we get into it, I was just starting high school. Our freshman English teacher was a CD aficionado. And there was an article in the school paper about how he had something like 3,000 CDs in his collection or something, which was really unusual in 87 because it was such a new medium this guy do you remember mr hand from fast times at ridgemont high i do this guy was totally mr hand his personality maybe a little bit more flamboyant but he was totally mr hand and he came in one day and he he asked the class you know does anybody have a recommendation for a new cd that i can get some australian band and of course we all said oh in excess, in excess. So he went out, he bought it. He came back a couple days later. We asked him how he liked it. Inxus? Like, no, in excess. And he goes, oh, well, it wasn't in excess of anything. Like, just like that. But I kind of got the feeling that he still liked it. So how could you not like this album? It's just so good. So, hey, should we start listening? And up first, we have the lead-off track of the album, Guns in the Sky. We 
which I actually saw this tour, and this is a song they opened the show with. So you saw them on the uh, the kick tour then in 88, huh? Actually, yes, it was uh, the odd date of September 11th, 1988 in Columbia, South Carolina. I know I usually have such a fantastic memory, but for some reason, this one's a little blurry to me. I don't know why that is. I, I was going to ask, was this a big stadium show or was this yeah, was like a, a smaller? It was the Carolina Coliseum, which is where I'd seen Duran Duran in 84. So you're talking, I don't know, 12, 13,000 people. It was sold out. So Oh, okay. So, yeah, it was a massive show. They were this, you know, big stage and all that crap going on. And uh, they were wonderful. What little I can remember about it. I know they opened up with this song, Guns in the Sky. They didn't do it like they did in uh, Live Baby Live either. I think this was the Calling All Nations leg of the tour. I believe that's what they were calling it. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. Yeah. But, now, I'm, I'm curious, were there substances ingested? Is that why you don't remember? Or was no, it just no, like, no. Totally. Just I hadn't, the euphoria? The euphoria of the evening? I hadn't done anything like that at that point in my life. I was with my high school okay. girlfriend, and we drove up. And Columbia, South Carolina is only about 50 minutes from me, so it was easy to go to a sh show there on a school night and get back within time for our parents not to be freaking out. It was Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers were the opening act, and I don't remember a thing about them being on the stage at all. Okay. The thing I remember about NXS is the stage sort of had this cityscape look to it, and they were glow-in-the-dark buildings painted it on the drum riser. Hmm. And they didn't have a backdrop or anything like most bands do. It was just girders and stuff there, like, you you know, lighting trusses, mm -hmm. which I found odd. Hmm. Maybe they had one for other dates of the tour, and they couldn't get it up in that particular arena for some reason interesting i wonder why mm -hmm. who knows so this song trey this is the only song on the album that is solely credited to michael hutchins for the writing so he wrote this about ronald reagan's star wars defense program right that's what the guns in the sky are i'm kind of surprised that you haven't mentioned the synth drum machine that they used it was an 808, wasn't it? 707. 707. Okay, well, I think yes. Need You Tonight was written with an 808. Also a 707. Oh, really? Yeah. I seen corrected on that one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Did I just best the synth You boy? did. Are you sure oh, wow. it wasn't an 808? Uh, I'm pretty... Uh, my sources say 707. Okay, but... we'll go then. They're probably correct then. Okay. So, yeah, Roland 707 drum machine. In Excess, I think, was one of the more innovative bands as far as their use of uh, drum machines and drum tracks along with John Ferris's live drumming. I gotta be real honest, I love the song live. When I've seen it performed live, like you mentioned, you know, uh, Live Baby Live, and they opened with that, and it was phenomenal. Yeah. The CD version, what is with the, the beginning, Michael, with this silly cartoon villain laugh oh, ha, ha. what the hell you can't get through that it's i don't so know stupid. you know he doesn't do that in the live performances no no he doesn't for this song it doesn't work for me when they perform it live totally different situation i love you know when they come out in the beginning of live baby live and you hear tim's opening dun dun Dun, dun, and the crowd goes nuts, and that is perfect. But the version that is on this CD, I do not like. 
I love that live version, and John's got one arm up in the air, and he's playing it with one hand. I'm like, that. He, he's just going, look, I'm a badass doing that. Look at mm-hmm. me. Look what mm-hmm. I can do. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's my crush right there. He's a fantastic drummer. Oh, he is. He's he's phenomenal. So, Trey, there is a video for this song, even yes. though it was not released as a single. Richard Lowenstein, the guy that directs a lot of their videos, he took the boys to Prague, which mm-hmm. at the time was behind the Iron Curtain. And they were kind of taking a page out of the Duran Duran playbook and, you know, shooting on location. And it seems like this video was pretty spontaneous. It was shot in the hallway of, I believe, their hotel. Really? And Yeah. It, it didn't seem like that there was a lot of planning that went into it. And you tell, as you're watching the video, uh, the guys are getting progressively drunker and drunker as the video goes on. You can especially tell with John. There was a story from somebody that was with them in Prague and... Uh, late at night, you know, they're at, in the hotel room and they hear this ding, ding, ding over and over. So they go and they look out in the hallway and John is apparently passed out drunk with his head in the elevator doors and the doors keep trying to close on his head. I think I did read that once. <laughs> anyway, aside from that, Keep in mind, this was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So for a Western band to be filming behind the Iron Curtain, it's amazing to me. I mean, I would not be surprised if they had like KGB or somebody following them around. You know what I mean? I don't know that for a fact, but I mean, you know, they. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if they did have people watching them while they were there. I never thought about that. I bet you there were. I bet you there were. I think that about covers that one. Okay, well, also in Prague, they shot a video for the next song, one of my favorites, New Sensation. Yes. So that was the third single from the album, Trey. It was released on April 4th, 1988, and went to number three on the Billboard Hot 100. I should note, just about two weeks prior to my 18th birthday. Oh, okay. The video was filmed on the roof of the Municipal House in Prague, and again, directed by Richard Lowenstein. You know, something that I've been noticing, especially, you know, within the last few years, they came out with the Dolby Atmos re-release of this mm-hmm. album which by the way I, I really encourage our listeners if you can get your hands on it listen to it the layering of the song and the different instruments is just breathtaking and i'm hearing things that i've never heard before and one of the things that i'm hearing 
buried deep down in the mix, sounds like a banjo. Now, there's no banjo player credited on the album. I don't know if what I'm hearing is actually a synth, you know, programmed to sound like a banjo. I would not be surprised, however, if Andrew Ferris didn't just pick up the banjo and start playing. Are you sure it's not something like a steel guitar? Yeah, you know what? I I wish there was some way I could isolate it so that I could play what I was looking for. But yeah, it's definitely not a steel guitar. It's definitely got that kind of a jingly banjo sound to it. So, I mean, if you get the chance, Trey, or... I'll have to sit down. Well, can I, if it's on YouTube, would it still be that Atmos mix? There, I think there is an Atmos mix on there, yeah. But, you okay. know, even if it's not, even if it's not the Atmos mix, if you listen very closely, I swear it's a banjo. Okay, so, you know, for me, the version of this song is, uh, is it Live Baby Live, or Live Baby Live, or Live Baby Live, or... Okay, so, officially, according to the liner notes of the album, it was Live Baby Live. Okay. However, every time I've seen the band interviewed about it, they've called it Live Baby Live. Well, that version of New Sensation on there just absolutely freaking rocks. Oh my god. It is unbelievable. And the way that the whole crowd starts jumping up and down, it's just a wave of bodies pulsing. And that that hot blonde wearing the NXS shirt there oh, on yeah. somebody's shoulders. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. But yeah, just the energy. Oh my gosh, that whole concert and they've recently re-restored the concert film for Live Baby Live in 4K. So worth checking out. But I can't even imagine what does that got to feel like to be in front of a stadium of 75,000 fans and every single one of them knows this song that you wrote and they're jumping up and down and singing it together. I just can't even imagine that must have been so amazing for the band, you know? According to the band, they were scared shitless. Have you seen that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Andrew talking about it. He's like, I was terrified to death. Oh, well, Andrew's always had anxiety issues, so I, that doesn't I, surprise I, I, me. But I couldn't imagine doing that. How many people were there? 60,000? 75,000. 75, yeah. I'm sorry. Up next, we have, this was the second single from the album, Devil Inside, which is also one of my favorite tracks on the album. With a look in his eyes Yes, I love this one, Trey. This is so good. It was released as a single in February of 88. I couldn't find the exact date for the single release, but I did see that it entered the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 on February 13th of 1988, and it peaked at number two. Part of the reason that this song was so popular is because of the video that was directed by... Who? 
Joel Schumacher. Come on, Trey. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, the video was directed by Joel Schumacher. No wonder it looked like Lost Boys. I always wondered about that. Well, and that's exactly it. They had given two of their songs to Joel to use on the soundtrack for Lost Boys. And this was one of them? No, this was his way of repaying the band. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. They did have to. What am I thinking? Yeah. You know, it's funny because a lot of really diehard fans of the band tell me that this is their least favorite video. I'm not going to mention any names. Wow, I love this video. This was... Yeah, I the video's amazing. Fan of the times, yeah. Yes. Well, the carousel scenes were filmed at the Balboa Fun Zone in Newport Beach, and the bar is called the Balboa Saloon, which is also in Newport Beach, California. All right. I just thought about the skateboarders and the hot chicks mm-hmm. and the tight dresses and the band just kind of, they were just kind of grooving in the crowd. I mean, the whole video is very frenetic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's something, you know, blink and you miss it kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Just the, the woman that's uh, walking on the bar while Andrew's, you know, playing the keyboard and stuff. And yeah, so many really cool elements. But can we also talk about arguably one of the most iconic guitar riffs of all time? Oh, yes, for sure. Yes. You know, the few people I ever met that didn't like this album say all the guitar lines were the same as the reason they didn't like it. I'm like, are you crazy? It gave the album a flow. The middle eight, the guitar solo. Oh, my gosh. What a jam. I'm trying to bring it up in my head and I can't. Yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it justice. Did you step on a cat there? No, no, no. <laughs> Smart ass. Now, in fairly recent years, maybe about a year ago, Andrew, one of the two songwriters, right, um, had commented that he didn't agree with the sentiment behind the song. He said that Michael wrote the lyric and he said, I, you know, I have some beliefs about life in the afterlife, you know, kind of implying that he was a little uncomfortable with the subject matter. And I'm sure it didn't help that in some of their concerts, when Michael was introducing the song, he would dedicate it to televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. I don't remember him doing that the night I saw him, but that's not saying he didn't do it either. Well, I think that was a little bit later after there were some scandals and stuff like that with, you know. Oh, pass it. Yeah, duh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One other thing I got to mention with devil inside trey you know my obsession with beavis and butthead they ripped on this one so oh, bad. yeah they it was, did it was beautiful butthead's like is this satanic <laughs> is this like satanic music <laughs> no way dude it's not cool enough <clears throat> Usually when I was watching that show back in the 90s, it was 2 in the morning, and I would have just gotten off of work and was had more than a few beers in me already, so a lot of that's blurry. All right. Well, next up we have not only the best-known single off the album, but arguably the best-known song by NXS, Need You Tonight. And give me a moment Your moves are so raw I've got to let you know I've got to let you know 
This was probably my least favorite track on the album. Okay. It just it's gotten run into the ground, like I've said about other songs. I don't skip this one like I will other songs like that for me, but this one was like, come on, man. Come on. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not a great song. It's a fucking fantastic song. But now when it comes on, I'll skip it. Because like you said, it's been played so much. It was the first single off the album. It was released October 24th, 1987. The music kind of came to Andrew Ferris while he was waiting for a cab on his way to Hong Kong, which is where Michael Hudgens was living. He was flying out to Hong Kong to work with Michael to write some songs. If you've ever seen the miniseries Never Tear Us Apart, which is based on the story of NXS, they actually reenact this. Yeah. And from what I understand, it's very accurate where Andrew gets in the cab and he tells the driver, wait, hold on, I'll be right back. And he goes back into the house, powers up his equipment and records dun, 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 and puts it all on tape and the meter's still running in the cab. And then he brings the tape out to the cab, you know, flies out to Hong Kong. The legend is that he gave the tape to Michael Hutchins and Michael came back with lyrics within 15 minutes. Yep. I was going to say, do you know why they picked this as a lead single? Why? No, I was asking you if you knew. Oh, (laughs) it's definitely, it's very commercial sounding. It's really very much that kind of rock funk fusion that they were going for. I don't know who was in the room and, you know, made that decision, but. Uh, you know, the, the video was definitely iconic with the, I don't know how they did that. They almost cartoony looking, but yet real photos and stuff of the band. Well, so that was Richard Lowenstein again, and he kind of pioneered this technique for the video for what you need off of Listen Like Thieves, where he actually took still photos of the oh, band yeah. and photocopied them and then kind of used them to recreate the animation, which was at the time when they were making the video for what you need. I mean, it was a really low budget, really low budget. And supposedly Mick Jagger came to Richard Lowenstein after that video came out and wanted to know, how did you do that? You know, what was, what's the secret? How did you do it? And, and I don't know if Richard ever told him, you know, that it was a Xerox copy. What they were going for with that video, incidentally, is they were trying to create a live or um, like a, a moving version of that iconic album cover that Nick Egan created. And so they would do some cutouts superimposed on each other. You know, some of them do look very kind of laughably low budget, but that's what they were going for. The video, like I said, it was definitely eye-catching, and it was MTV wouldn't stop playing it. I mean, once this single came out, it was everywhere. It was one of those instantaneous hits. It was actually, what, five MTV Video Music Awards, including 1988 Video of the Year? Yeah. And it was ranked at number 21 on MTV's countdown of the 100 greatest videos of all time. Yes, yes, it was, it was wonderful video, like I've said. And I, I, I think right here we could actually lead into the next song. 
because two or three weeks into the release of this, they started pairing it with the next song on the album, which they also did a video for, and that song is Mediate. was written solely by Andrew. So most of the songs on the album were Andrew and Michael together. Michael was the sole writer on Guns in the Sky. Andrew was the sole writer on Mediate. And it's got Michael doing kind of a rapping. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you asked earlier, Trey, how come the record label thought that this was black music? No, it doesn't sound. It's just, it's, it's, Sounds like 60s countercultural music, which I feel like is exactly what they were getting at with it. It is kind of a rap. A I bit. mean, it's spoken word with rhythm and rhyme. I can see that, but I still, I just, I don't know. I, I disagree with Atlantic Records. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, well, history disagrees with Atlantic Records. I can't think of the guy's name, Doug. I can't think of his last name, but he was the head of the record label at that time. He was eating crow. Doug, you're a jerk. You know? Yeah. There's some other stories about that guy, too, about the way that he treated women in the record label. But that that's a whole other story. But do you know why they paired these two songs together, Need You Tonight and Mediate? I, they flow very well together. Other than that, I don't know. It was actually a happy accident when yeah. they were in the studio and editing, and they realized... Much like my editing the previous episode when I realized the two songs had the same tempo, they, I guess, you know, left one song on and, and then the other one following it. And they realized, oh, my gosh, these actually flow together perfectly. And so in many places, like, for example, the MTV Music Video Awards, it was actually Need You Tonight slash Mediate. Mm-hmm. A bit of an interesting story for me with this song was my girlfriend in high school. She was actually a year older than me. She was a senior this year and she was in AP English and they were given an assignment to write about a song they love. And she picked this song. Unfortunately, I can't remember what she wrote about it. She somehow related it for our relationship or some silly high school lovebirds thing like that. But Okay, that's cool. I mean, so we both have a connection with yeah. our English, our high school English classes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that was a play on a Bob Dylan video. Subterranean Homesick Blues. Yes, which was done, what, 69, 70? Sounds about right. And for you, to those of you that don't know, videos did indeed exist before MTV came along. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of one of them. It's filmed at a truck yard. And I'm under the impression that they didn't actually have permission to be there. I've gotten that from watching it. And they just kind of jumped the fence. And I think they did it in two takes before they were chased off for trespassing. You guys know I love John Ferris. 
I, I if I ever met John, I would go just absolutely weak in the knees and probably couldn't get two words out. But John, for being the drummer, his rhythm is really off. And if you watch very carefully, they actually had to change the speed of the video so that the rest of the band was in sync with the music. Because John actually, for somebody whose whole life is rhythm, maybe it was just the, you know, hey, we got to rush. We got to get through this before we get kicked out. I don't know. Well, if it, this was done gorilla, like you speculating mm-hmm. it might have been, they may not have had the music playing in order to attract less attention. And that's a good word, gorilla. Mm. And if it's, if, if it's a working, it looks like a concrete facility to me, but. They probably wouldn't have heard the music even had they had it playing. That's very possible, it's yeah. going on in the background. There's there's work going on, so it's probably loud. It looks like Michael is reading off of something somebody's holding off camera to me, so maybe he had that as his cue for the lyrics, because he couldn't, couldn't hear the song. Well, but he wasn't singing. He was just kind of doing that do-do-do-do. Wasn't he mouthing the lyrics? I'll have to watch this. I should have watched these videos before we did this episode. No, it's it's just do, 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 okay. do. That's all he's doing. So there's a couple other things that are worth mentioning in that video. So first of all, Tim Ferriss, lead guitarist, wearing the leather pants and rocking the leather pants, I might add, even though his T-shirt's tucked into his pants, which don't do. Who does that? But he is looking... His hair in this video is so perfect, but I mean... He looks like a young Mel Gibson in this video. I could see that. And you know, what you just said goes back to my famous uh, mocking NXS and their poor uh, fashion choices over the course of the 80s. Okay, all right. John's wearing like a pair of bondage pants or something in this video, isn't he? Something with zippers all over it anyway. You know, I should note the night I saw them in Columbia, South Carolina, Michael Hutchins was wearing a pair of biker shorts. Oh, really? I was like, dude, what in the hell are you wearing? Oh, boy. Well, that was the in thing back then. My boyfriend in, a, in high school used to wear them, too. And a pair of, I think he had on some Doc Martin boots. Okay. Well. But anyways. You do you, Michael. Yeah. So in the video, you know, the special date, right? That's one of the lines. The sign says 9-8-1945. What is that? So for the longest time, I puzzled over this. What is September 8th, 1945? But then I realized in Australia, they do the date, then the month. So it's actually 9th of August, 1945, which was the date that the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we have a subtle message tucked in there that's very much anti-war anti-nuclear it's a little bit more out in the open and guns in the sky because that's the theme of the song but here it's a little bit more subtle and then of course we've got the beautiful saxophone solo at the end by kirk pengilly what do you call that straight saxophone like that he's playing i think it's an alto sax i was gonna say is that an alto sax sax alto sax i can't say saxophone there we go okay I think it is. I am not a saxophone person, so I couldn't couldn't tell you. So I'm sure somebody will write in and correct us if we're wrong. Are we moving on? We're moving on. So next up, Trey, we have the loved one. Yonder, she's walking. She 
I love this song. I must have been March or April of 88. My girlfriend and I broke up for 24 hours. And this song, and <laughs> you know how that got. 24 hours. Okay. Yeah, you know, this song, and Never Tear Us Apart, was basically she, I guess, went home and listened to him over and over and cried and cried and cried. And when we got to school the next day, she ran up to me and hugged me and said she was sorry. And we were back on. Aww. This was probably two years into our relationship. I can vividly remember all that happening. Do you know anything about the song? I was going to say, I did not know it was a cover until years later. Yeah, it was a cover of a 1966 song by an Australian band called The Loved Ones. And this is actually not the first time that NXS has done this. They released another version of this song as a standalone single in March of 1981. Right. Isn't there an earlier live version of this floating around out there on YouTube? It probably is. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, this was a staple of their uh, repertoire yeah. for a long time. The version that's on Kick is a lot more... Polished, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, okay, may maybe it is. And it's like the, I actually prefer the older version because I think it, it's a very sensual song. And I feel like that that gets lost a little bit in the kick version. But if you listen to the original version, it starts with Gary Beers's bass. That kind of, Dun -dun, you know, and, and it's just a very sexy, sensual bass line. Mm -hmm. And the song starts off quiet and it really builds. It doesn't do that on this version on Kick. And Kick, it just kind of jumps right in. There's no foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best analogy I got for it. There's no foreplay. It's a good song. I'm just saying that I prefer their previous version to this one. I actually really like this version. It, it just kicks ass. Yeah. And I guess I have a little sentimental, you know, holdings for this song. Yeah. I know it's understandable. Yeah, this whole album is just such a... I have so many great, fun memories tied to it. I have a very recent memory tied to this song. So, Trey, you know my cat Pinky, my old man that I've had since college. He's really getting up there in age. There's a few songs that when I sing to him, he'll, this is going to sound really funny. He joins in. Yeah. And I'll be singing, oh, baby, I love you so. I need you now. And he'll go, meow. You know, I need you, meow. <laughs> I got to see if I can get this on tape because it is, it's, it's pretty good. Like he, he recognizes the song. And if I'm playing it, he'll come running because he'll know I'll sing it to him. It's really that's, cute. That's a male Siamese for you. Very vocal. Yes, yes. 
Very vocal. Trey, that's the end of side one. If you had the so, cassette or the record, here he, he showed up. Terry, did you hear him? See if you can get it. Pinky, come here, baby. Oh, baby, I love you so. I need you now. <laughs> He's my sweetie, though, aren't you, my old man? Are you my old man? Okay, Trey, I've just flipped the album over, and I'm about to start side two. Sorry for the delay, those of you listening on CD, or digitally. So what's next? What's next? We are up to Wildlife, and I love this one a lot. Off in the distance Five and bright We made decisions It's what we do, it's what we do love this one too and you know this is the one song that i can say i don't know anything about i don't either <laughs> i don't know but it's a jam it's a jam i love that i always call it the garbage can falling over at the end and then it just jumps right in to never tear us apart the sound effect that you're talking about yeah 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 and uh uh Uncle Buck, when John Candy opens that closet and a bowling ball rolls off of it, nails him in the hand. That, what did that remind you of? Yes, but this song just rocks, man. And they did play this one live. I do remember that. When it's bad, it ain't bad enough. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Love it. And there's a video on YouTube now that looks professionally done for this. It's a live collage. Have you seen that? No, I can't say that I have. I mean, I remember the video from Live Baby Live. Oh, yeah, they well, that's not, it wasn't on the original release, so yeah, this song just rocks. Picks yeah, up. it is. It's an absolute, it is. It's a rocking song. I think it tends to get forgotten, you know, because it wasn't released as a single, and there were so many really outstanding tracks, singles from this album that I think people tend to forget about wildlife, but underrated gem. I got two phases with this song where I'll just play it 20 times in a row on repeat. Just, you know, reach over and start it again. Oh, you're like that Like you guy. said, when it's, when it's bad, it ain't bad enough. Nice. Nice. All right. So next up, Trey, the classic, Never Tear Us Apart. I told you that we could fly because we're all
And this is what you think they would still play a lot too, but they just don't because this was a smash also. You know, it, it comes up. It seems like every few weeks it's being used in a TV show or oh, a really? movie or, oh yeah, there was a, a commercial that came out pretty recently that I think was using it. So, I mean, I hear it all the time. I don't watch TV, so like broadcast TV, I just watch YouTube or whatever. Gotcha. You know, my high school girlfriend and I, we were going to play this at our wedding. Yeah. Which never happened, but, you know, this was going to be our song and our wedding. You know how you are, you play, you got your whole life planned out. Uh-huh, I do. It's fun thinking back on all that stuff, man. So this was released as a single on August 8th, 1988. It was the fourth single off of the album. When Andrew Ferris wrote the music, it was like a really up-tempo, kind of Gene Vincent-sounding song and Michael Hutchins heard something in it and had him slow it down and just kept telling him okay slower slower until eventually it became a ballad and then somebody I think it was Chris Thomas somebody had them add a string section to it which just brought this song up to the next level this song still gives me the chills when I hear it it's a wonderful song Fantastic. And the video was just amazing, too. Of Michael walking through that was at a cemetery. Yes, in Prague. And the band at the end kind of coming along and going on them. That video, I think, is a love letter to the city of Prague. It really is. They couldn't have picked a better place to shoot that. Of course, fans of the band know that when Michael died in 1997, he was only 37 years old. Mm -hmm. When they carried his coffin out of the church at the funeral service, they played this song. Yeah. You can see this video on YouTube. So it's the five surviving band members and Michael's younger brother, Rhett Hutchins, and they're carrying him out of St. Andrew's Cathedral. And this song is playing. And I can't, I can't stop crying when I see it. Every time I see that and this song plays, it's just... God, what a what a beautiful memorial, but so sad that his life was cut so short, you know? Um, anything else you want to say about Never Tear Us Apart? I think you just nailed it all with that. that. You can't top it. Okay. Well, then I'll let you take the next one. I meant nothing I can add to that. I just lost my place again like a dummy. Mystify. Up next is track nine, which is Mystify, and this is another just tremendously wonderful song I need perfection some twisted selection that tangles me This is apparently the main song that Atlanta Records had a real big issue with when they heard the album. Really? Yes. Really? Or so I've read. 
oh, see, I didn't know that. So it kind of starts off with like a very up-tempo where it's just Michael singing with Andrew mm-hmm. on the piano and there's the snapping. Yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Remember my Facebook post about a year ago over this song? I'm sorry. I really don't. I looked it up the day you commented on it. I don't remember every single post I commented on a year ago, Trey. I'm sorry. I'll see if I can link it to you after the show and show you. All right. That's cool. So this was released as a single on March 15th, 1989, and it was the fifth single. So there was a quite a gap between Never Tear Us Apart, August of 88, Mystify, March of 89. This surprised, actually. But again, you know, if the goal was an album full of singles, then this is the goose laying the golden eggs and they're just going to keep coming and keep coming, right? Yeah, exactly. I, You know, I totally don't remember this being released as a single. Well, it didn't chart on the Billboard Hot 100, but it did make the U.S. Billboard album rock tracks where it peaked at number 17. Now, something that I found interesting, because Trey, as you know, I'm in Chicago, born and raised... Michael and Andrew wrote most of this song here in Chicago and recorded a demo at a studio here. Now, I haven't been able to find out what studio it was, but, you know, so I feel a special connection to this song. That's pretty interesting. I believe you've told me that before. I might have. I might have. What were they doing in Chicago? Was it on the previous tour? Mm Mm-hmm. It was probably on the Listen Like Thieves tour. You would have to admit one it would have had to. Of course, it was <laughs> Listen Like Thieves Tour. This is not the first single that Michael and Andrew wrote together that was inspired in Chicago. Because as fans know, uh, he was inspired to write Original Sin as their tour bus went through Chicago. And they saw young black and white children playing together out on the street. So, I didn't know that. So, yeah, yeah. So I've had some very interesting discussions with a number of my friends about the meaning of the lyrics of this song, specifically that line, almond looks the chill divine. Now, if you say someone has almond shaped eyes, they're Asian, they're Asian shaped eyes. So I think that Michael is singing to an Asian person. I know I have friends that disagree with me on this, but it's that that line. Probably, I would agree with you. So I'm wondering, did he like meet a sexy Asian woman in Chinatown here when uh, when they were passing through, or you know, what's the story there? I'd love to know. He had a girlfriend there in the listen like these tour, didn't he? What he? What was that girl's name? Suzanne. Um, well, of course, when... we're talking about a rock star. Yeah. Have you seen the music video for Mister? That's Five? what my post I was just talking about was about was a video. Are you. Oh. You mentioned where oh, it was. Oh, oh, the official music video. I thought you said like there was like a fan video that came up with live footage or whatever. That was Wild Life. Oh, okay. Then I'm getting across. Yes. Okay. My bad. Have you been sniffing so, Lou yeah, today? I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> You're funny. No. So, so the music video uses footage. There was um, a film, like a documentary film that the band was putting out around this time called In Search of Excellence. It was only released on VHS. I've never been able to get my hands on it to to watch it. But that's where a lot of the footage for this comes from. And so in the very beginning of the video where Andrew and Michael are sitting at the piano, 
that's like footage from this. And then, yeah, and then they're in the studio, they're recording, and then it transitions to them performing live. Tim Ferriss has got a weird hat that says, like, brat. But yeah, that's all from the In Search of Excellence VHS documentary that they were filming. Which, uh, is that out? Is, is that out there? Can you watch it? I haven't been able to find it personally. There's got to be a digital copy of it out somewhere. Somewhere somebody has to have bootlegged this. Well, sometimes you kick and sometimes you get kicked. Good transition to the <laughs> there next you go. song. There I thought you'd like that. That's a chick, obviously. I don't know a thing about this one either, but I love it. Do you? Mm -hmm. This is another one that I don't care for. There are elements of it that I like, but it's those fake sounding synth horns. Yeah, those are a bit cheesy. That is a bit yeah. cheesy. I, I just, you know, I, there's not a bad song on this album at all. No, I mean, what, to be fair, what I'm saying, I don't care for it. Right. You know, this one, Guns in the Sky, it's still light years better than 99% of what's out there. Yes. You know, so. But, yeah, so I don't like the synth horns. That kind of takes me out of the experience until Kirk's actual saxophone comes in over it, mm -hmm. and then it's layered mm -hmm. nicely, and then it sounds good. Um, There's oh. a video that they did fairly recently for this one and when i say fairly recently i think it's like within the past 10 years or so it was on that, that dvd wasn't it yes that takes place in a skate park and the only band member that's there is gary gary beers the bassist who by the way has a birthday the day that we are recording uh is actually it's june 22nd and we're recording on June 21st, so... I was going to say, but, what uh, day is it? It's June 22nd in Australia right now, but Gary is in L.A., so I guess it is not his birthday, technically, till tomorrow. I just spent five days at work, for those of you who are wondering why I'm a little lost. And Gary, if you happen to hear this, happy birthday, my friend. Happy birthday, Gary. So Gary, by the way, is now in a band in L.A. called Ashen Moon. I'd heard that. They're really good. Check them out. Lead singer is a guy named Toby. They've got a really nice rock and roll vibe. I've streamed one of their performances before. I was very impressed with it. Yeah, so the video, he's the only member of the band that's in the video, and he's just hanging out with skateboarders in a skate park, and the video is just a bunch of kids skateboarding. So, uh, Trey, our, our friends over at In Access, Access All Areas, which is one of my favorite podcasts, they just broke a story that finally explained why Gary goes by the name Gary Gary Beers. Didn't we mention this in our other In Access episode? 
Well, this is something new that oh, I didn't oh, oh, know. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So the official story is that it was a printer's mistake. Yeah. So they recently did an interview with Bruce Butler, who is a, a manager for a number of musicians, including Ollie Olson. And Ollie Olson worked with Michael on Max Q, which was one of his side projects anyway. One of the things that came out, and this makes perfect sense to me when I heard it, I encourage our listeners to go and listen to this podcast because it's really well done. Shout out to Hayden and B. But um, Bruce says that at the time, the band's touring manager was named Gary Morris. Oh. So in order to differentiate them, Gary Morris was Gary. And Gary Beers was Gary Gary, like the real Gary, right? Gary Gary. Oh, I get it. And that makes perfect sense. Right? And it only took, what, 40-something years for that story to finally come out. That makes perfect sense, though. Makes a lot more sense than a printer's error. So this is another one, Trey, that I think is really, really good live, but I don't care for the album version. I don't know, Lori. I spent the whole day with my axe to the wheel. Okay. Skate or die, huh? <laughs> you had to think skate about that one for a second, didn't you? It, took, it did take me a second. Skate or uh, die. Next, we have track 11, Calling All Nations, which is also the name of the tour I saw. So let's check out a bit of this song. one i love it I, I don't know a thing about this one either i don't know much about it i always took it as a big party was going on who knows i kind of wonder about some of the lyrics though take the chains from your mind take the chains from your feet and do the sex dance because it's necessary it just makes me think of getting off of work on a friday and you're going home and changing and going to the club or meeting your girlfriend whatever you're doing boyfriend you know whatever okay. That's how I always took it. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of Calling All Nations, Trey, in October, there is a book coming out called Calling All Nations, A Fan History of In Excess. And guess who contributed a story that's going to be included in the book? I don't know. Was it you? It was me. Yeah. Yeah. So what they were doing is they were looking for submissions from fans not just fans talking about, you know, stories of seeing the band live, because I never saw them live, or, you know, encounters with the band, but just stories about what the band meant to you or how the band fit into your life. So I did submit something. They did inform me that it is included in the book, and they did ask me for a picture. 
And they wanted a photo of me from that time period. So I did. I did find oh, one wow. and I did submit it. I don't know how much they're using. You see, that's the thing. I know what I submitted to them. Right. I don't know what's actually going to be used and what got edited out. But yeah, it's called Calling All Nations, A Fan History of In Excess. And it's available on the band's website, inexcess.com, for pre-order. Check it out. So would you get a free copy of it? or I were... wish. No, I had to pay for it. I had to pay through the nose. Well, damn the man. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so back to the song. Yes, this is a jam. This is one. It really, I think, to me, speaks to the spirit of the band because it really does unite people from all nations. They've united fans from all across the globe. I've met people in the NXS fan community. That's essentially why you and I became friends, as ever NXS, isn't it? Was it? I don't remember. It might have been. It was something in one of those groups where I was saying something about NXS, and you were like, Ooh, hey, I'm pretty sure it was in that Revenge of the 80s group, and is that one of the ones I was banned from because I was calling out the racist assholes in that group? Probably. Yes, if, yeah, you're listening, if you're listening, Revenge of the 80s admins, yes, you are racist assholes. Well, you know, Chrissy listens to this. Okay, good. <laughs> and she, I think she likes you. I, I don't think she was... Chrissy's actually pretty cool. And I, I, I definitely remember her not agreeing with that either, but we got Pito. Anyway, no, I mean, I threw... Just through the NXS fan community, I have met friends in Australia, the UK, Portugal, Spain. So I'm really, really grateful for the way that the music has brought fans together throughout the world. And it's something that binds us together rather than separates us. It's been a long time since I've known another NXS fan in person. All right. Trey, we're coming up on the last track of the album, and that is Tiny Daggers. Another one I like, but I, I just don't know a darn thing about it. It sounds like it's about a breakup to me. I, you know, I think this is just a dopey pop song. I, I, uh, no, no real love for this one. I mean, it's not bad. It's just dopey. <laughs> you know, one thing I can say about seeing them in 1988 and talking about it tonight and kind of thinking back on that era, I'm pretty sure they played this entire album that night. Oh, yeah? Not in order, but... Over the course of the evening, they played all of these songs because I can. It's kind of coming back into my mind now because I remember being very surprised that they played this one. It was one I didn't think they would pull off live. Hmm. 
So it was about 10 of the other hits mixed in with this. You know, they might not have played the loved one. I think that was the one they left off. Oh, interesting. I wonder why. Arguably a much better song than Tiny Daggers. Probably time constraints and who knows. Maybe. So, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to get some grief from somebody. I'm sure I'm going to hear from somebody, oh, you're not a true fan if you don't like all their songs. No, I, you know what? That's ridiculous. I, I can be a fan and I can also be critical and I can express, you know, love for the things I love and dislike for the things that I do not like. And uh, there are three songs on this album that I think are very weak that I would have loved to see them replaced with maybe some of the, some of the B sides or some of the, you know, other tracks that they had around this time that didn't make the cut. I don't even think this is their best album, not by a long shot. I think that their best is yet to come X then welcome to wherever you are. I think welcome to wherever you are was probably the best. Although my favorite is the one that came after that full moon, dirty hearts. I mean, arguably their best music was yet to come, but I appreciate this album for what it is because this is the album that literally catapulted them into international stardom. Yeah, who knew? And a few of them did. I mean, I think Chris Murphy knew. <laughs> you know? I think you definitely know when you've got something good on your hands. But as far as, you know, our fan perspective, I didn't think they were going to... I mean, what the hell? It just was instantaneous, like I said. Just boom. Oh, it blew up. It blew up. It was everywhere. Everybody... I mean, you know, like I said, even my high school English teacher. Yeah. You know? Um... So I am grateful to this album because if this album hadn't taken off the way it did, then everything that came after wouldn't have happened. And again, I'm not ripping on the album. There are some amazing songs. Never Tear Us Apart, possibly one of the most beautiful love songs ever written. I love New Sensation. You know, I think that that is a really strong song. And, you know, even the ones that I don't feel a lot of love for the way I do some of the tracks, they're still arguably very good songs. You know, for me, this album is just all killer, no filler. Okay. I, I, I wore a cassette out of it out. My girlfriend went and actually bought the vinyl album and made two cassettes of it. I probably played this more than I did Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. I mean, seriously, this thing just was, it was like you got something sticky on your finger and just couldn't get it off or just kept coming back to it and coming back to it and coming yeah. back to it. You know, it's one of the albums that you play it not even realize you were playing. You know what I mean? You know, you come in and just turn it on and just go and just keep playing it five, six times over the course of an evening. Even in the summer of 88, we were just get in the car and it was on nobody would even think about it or it was like a natural thing to have this thing playing i can remember i'd call my girlfriend at home and i you know she'd pick up the phone and i'd hear you know boom bah, uh, bah, in the background you know well and i'm sitting here as you're saying that and i'm thinking did i ever give the cd that i stole back to my mother and i don't know that i did it's pretty cool to me that your mom had it. I doubt my mom even has a clue who NXS is. Yeah, well, you know, mom and I both 
were in excess fans. We'd watch MTV and like the video for What You Need came on and we'd both start dancing, you know. So hi, mom, if you're listening. Does she listen? Sometimes she does. That's pretty if cool. It's music that she likes, she might. That's why I got to watch what I say. <laughs> yeah. I know all of Lori's secrets. Uh, so if you, you know, <laughs> you need some ammunition one day, contact me and we'll talk. Oh, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you don't, you don't know all my secrets. Trust me on that. But hey, you mentioned kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. Is that the cure? I think Dude, that's Kate, what. <laughs> what the hell? What's what? What? Where does all this cure you? stuff come from? I'm, people are strange. I know people are strange. That's Echo and the Bunnyman. I think this that we're gonna do that one next, right? Kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. Yes. So that's going to be our next episode in two weeks. That's actually the first album by The Cure that I ever owned. So I have a couple things I'm going to throw in, but it's going to be mostly you on that one, I think. Well, this is actually the first album that they released after I had gotten into them. So we've got a bit of a similar thing going there. But yeah, well, well this one's going to be, I'm going to have to contain myself. All right. So thank you again for listening. Come back in two weeks. We're going to talk all about the cures. Kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from Trey. You want-